So you're saying you were the biggest challenge in this project? Yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah. My my size, Don said, I kind of, I kind of That's fell what in I'm love hearing. with. <laughs> I, I fell in love with what we Jonathan's had ego was the biggest challenge in the project. Right, yeah, it all, it all. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the Academy of Management Review's Origin Series. My name is Rich McAdock, and I am an associate editor for AMR, and I'm your host for this show. Uh, today, uh, we will, I will be interviewing uh, two of the co-authors of a paper called uh, The Social Nature of Stakeholder Utility. Uh, Don Lang and John Bundy are here to talk about the paper, uh, which they co-authored with Young Park. Uh, so, gentlemen, welcome to the uh, AMR Origin Series. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Rich. Glad oh, to be my here. pleasure. Absolutely. So, uh, why don't you just start us off by giving us a brief um, kind of elevator pitch description of the paper and what it does in a couple of minutes? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll, I'll take that. Um, I, I think what what we what we were trying to do with this paper, and hopefully we, we did achieve, was um, in thinking about stakeholder relationships and how firms manage their stakeholder relationships, we wanted to get beyond the dyadic view. There's a lot of really great and interesting research that, that looks at how the firm and the stakeholder interact as kind of uh, individual entities and, and how you know, we can maximize utility for stakeholders and we can maximize return uh, for the firms, but we've only kind of just begun considering kind of what happens outside of that dyad when we get out of the relationship and, and kind of deeper into the social system. And I think there's some, some great research happening right now uh, on that system, and that's where we wanted to contribute. So, so as the title kind of highlights the, the social nature of stakeholder um, utility, we wanted to get at kind of the, the, the socio-political interactions that happen between the stakeholder, between the firm, and between kind of the, the other stakeholders in the world um, around it. And so what we what we outlined here is, is a framework for kind of understanding how stakeholders will use that social environment um, to assess their utility. And, and we highlight three different um, uh, factors that kind of go into that utility judgment. One is um, how, the stake, how the firm's treatment of other stakeholders is consistent with their worldview. Another draws on um, equity theory and, and considers interpersonal um, equity and inequity judgments. And then uh, the third framework, uh, the third view draws on, on kind of more neoclassical economic theories of, of instrumental gain and loss. Again, all relative to how the stakeholders view of other stakeholders treatment influences their own utility judgments. So really trying to get at this kind of systematic perspective of that stakeholder utility judgment kind of take us beyond um, just that dyadic relationship. And now the, the final thing I'll add here, um, just so we can have a conversation, would be we also wanted to recognize that it's not all roses. Um, a lot of the research that we that we find on stakeholder theory that does consider um, the social environment kind of 
looks at it in a very positive way that by treating one stakeholder well, other stakeholders will view that and that they'll be happy and, and that their utility will increase as well. And so we, we certainly acknowledge that and appreciate that and, and quite frankly want more of that. But we also wanted to recognize that there are times when uh, one stakeholder might view the treatment of another stakeholder negatively uh, and might decrease their utility when others are treated more positively. So we wanted to get kind of that, that dynamic and that relationship um, into kind of a more systematic theory um, that we can present. So that's probably, that's probably the elevator pitch. Yeah, I like the clever approach of taking a systemic perspective on the topic. It's kind of what, uh, you know, if I put my economist hat on, kind of what an economist would refer to as a general equilibrium approach in some sense. Okay, so, so tell us a little bit about, since this is the AMR origin series, we are interested in the origins of uh, of, of the papers that are published in AMR for the purpose of demystifying the theory creation process for potential authors. So tell us a little bit about the, the origins of this project. Where did it come from? Well, one, I guess a general rule I have for sort of coming up with ideas and projects is thinking about what's been bothering me lately. Like what are the I actually think that a really terrible way of idea finding is just sit in front of your blank computer screen with the cursor blinking at you and trying to come up with an idea, but it's better to sort of think about what it is that, uh, that you just kind of in the back of your mind, it's nagging at you. And so I really started getting this, um, this nagging feeling. Uh, I, sh I should say, first of all, that I was getting pretty deep into the stakeholder literature and hanging around with uh, with all the big names in stakeholder theory, you know, Freeman and Harrison and Phillips and uh, Wicks and uh, and those and Sybil Sachs and uh, Jay Barney and all the people who are kind of making this a really interesting area of study. And um, and so one of the things that started uh, of great interest to me and great interest to stakeholder theorists is. So, so why does a stakeholder stick with a firm? Uh, and that, and that's, a, that's a super important problem for firms because they need the stakeholders who provide the resources uh, for the firm to continue thriving and for it to, uh, and surviving. And, and so um, uh, people like, um, you know, Bossy and, and um, Harrison have been really interested in how there's this uh, synergy that goes on that you kind of could can get more, more interested engagement by stakeholders. If you treat your stakeholders well, they're, if, you treat your, uh, if you treat your employees well, you know, maybe your customers are gonna like your place better. And uh, in, that, in that idea, that sort of positive ripple effect idea was going on and is still going on in the stakeholder literature. It's an important idea. We, we like that idea. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know. I had this. I had this paper in mind from this really nice paper that you guys are probably familiar with, but Nickerson and Zanger and, and um, SMJ and O8, where, where they talk about uh, it's not a stakeholder paper, but it could be because they're talking about envy uh, um, in within organizations and comparison costs for the organization and how how this psychological phenomenon of envy actually. Uh, has an effect on the structure of firms. 
And I, I love that paper and I love the idea and it, and it just, and so here's, what's nagging in the back of my mind. If we got these strong effects that actually affect the, the way firms are structured, you know, sort of what's inside the firm and what outside the firm, you have to read that paper to understand what I'm talking about, but uh, then, then why are we always assuming that there's positive ripple effects when you treat one set of stakeholders well with other stakeholders? Why wouldn't things like envy kick in? And, and so that, so around 2016, the carrier corporation, the, you know, the big company in Indiana that makes heating equipment or refrigerating equipment decided they were going to move a, a factory to Mexico. It seemed like a normal business decision to satisfy the stakeholders, get lower production costs. And it, in, in late 2016, it becomes a major issue when it becomes part of um, uh, presidential candidate uh, Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, and now there's picketing and um, and a huge backlash politically and across uh, you know with, across the U.S. Uh, to this sort of business decision and. So, so this kind of reaction to how other stakeholders are being treated, in other words, stake, shareholders are being looked out for, but other stakeholders are really mad. And so that kind of thing is interesting to me. Then, then there's this opportunity in 2017 where uh, Sybil Sachs and uh, Sharon Alvarez are putting together a session at the conference uh, with people like Harrison and Barney and Mitchell and others on um, uncertainty in stake in the stakeholder theory, and they and I got invited to, to do a talk, and I and so this thing that's been nagging at me, uncertainty in stakeholder relations, I, th I thought, well, this is a considerable amount of uncertainty. It's like this social effect. How are, are you going to be happy with how? is stakeholder B going to be happy with how you're treating stakeholder A? Or are they going to be mad? And will that affect their satisfaction? So I did that presentation. And then I got back from the academy and I grabbed Bundy and grabbed John Bundy because I knew like he's been really thinking about the stakeholder literature and he's very interested in this idea too. And then we had a brand new doctoral student, Young Park. And so the team formed almost like a week after the academy. And anyway, that's the origin story. It's just this kind of nagging issue. It's like, why is it that we kind of assume positive ripple effects? Maybe there's a negative ripple effect we should be flushing out. I'll, I'll jump in and say I, I attended that, that presentation. I had no idea what, what Don was going to present on. It was, um, it was obviously just the topic was interesting to me around stakeholder uncertainty. And in classic uh, AOM fashion, they severely undercounted the popularity of, of Jay Barney and a few others who were, and maybe Don himself, who were speaking. So I remember the room being like tight packed, like hundreds of people into this teeny tiny room. And it was really, really hot. And we were all in there for like an hour and a half while, while these great presenters were, were sharing the ideas. And, um, and then, and then as Don noted, he, he came, came up to me right after we got back from Academy here at, at Arizona state and, and said, we got to work on this paper. And I said, yeah, I thought you already had a paper, but great. Uh, it sounds like a good idea. And so we, we kind of got rolling um, then with, with Young and uh, as a team. So it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I like that story because it highlights how, um, you know, how generative it can be to just simply notice uh, in inherent contradictions in the literature or at least tensions, put it that way. And uh, let, me add one, let me add one thing, Rich, to what you just said, because I think and I always give this advice to doctoral students, you've got to really read the literature and, and in order to notice these, uh, these things that people are, 
and honestly, we're not contradictory in this takeover literature at all. We are really adding to it. It feels really good because it feels like we're just taking the next step. So we're not challenging much in the literature, except that, hey, here's another direction you guys haven't looked at yet. So, but knowing the literature very well, and then being able to look at these events happening in the real world, like, well, envy, envy. We can see envy in our own departments. I mean, envy is all around us, you know, and then looking at things like the, these big political. Another example that we love is, um, is uh, how investors seem to be mad at Costco because they're treating employees better than Walmart does. I mean, that kind of thing is really interesting to us. It's like, why? Uh, uh, it seems like the investors are most satisfied when the employees are getting the least value. And, and, um, and even though it could be, and some analysis has shown that Costco gets benefits from treating their employees better because right. they have more retention and it better, they're able to track better, you know, I'm going to say more seasoned people and so forth. So anyway. Yeah. So I mean, and that raises the question, can, can stakeholders be too demanding for their own good in some right. sense, you know, that's a, so that's just, I, I like that. I like that origin story about how, you know, just simply noticing uh, that uh, the two pieces of literature have opposite implications can lead to a, um, can lead to a, a, a clever contribution. So, okay. So why don't I ask you to, um, why don't I ask you to, Walk us through the, uh, some aspects of the paper in a little bit more detail. Uh, and for that purpose, I will share my screen. So this is the, the main table from the paper, table one. Uh, can you talk us through what's in this table and what does it mean in terms of your contribution? One thing that we noticed in the literature was that there'd really been quite a bit of thought about equity. I mean, that's equity theories, pretty old, pretty established theory. It's sort of that people are using others as their reference for comparison. And so we thought that had, that had to be part of this story. And it certainly was part of the Nickerson and Zanger story about envy. It's like, if you see somebody else getting paid more than you, uh, that, you know, that starts to get really pretty irritating pretty fast. And, um, um, but we, we thought there's got to be more. To, so anyway, that's, that's one of the roles we definitely see stakeholders is fulfilling. And so the question is, how does the other stakeholders reflect on my own treatment? And, uh, and uh, we thought it could. And I guess an example we really like on, in this is just the example of people flying first class. Mm. and looking at the other class, like looking at the, looking at the coach class or people flying coach and looking up at first class and sort of what are people, how are people using the treatment of the other stakeholder to evaluate, uh, to evaluate their own treatment. So um, that's our starting point. John? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, it, based on kind of Don's reading, as he said, in, in Envy and, and some others, and, and of course the stakeholder literature for a long time has, has recognized the importance of kind of equity and fairness. Um, some of um, uh, Flora Boudreau's work and um, uh, Harrison and them. And so we use that as a starting point, but we kind of, we wanted to think about what else. And in a lot of my own research, I've, I've considered 
um, two different dimensions in terms of stakeholder relationships. One of these is what I call the values dimension, right? How, how do the values of the organization and the stakeholder kind of mesh um, and get along with each other? And then of course the others, the, the more classic instrumental dimension, what are they getting out of that relationship? So we wanted to kind of also think about how um, those two dimensions also fit into the equation. One of the fun things too, is Donna and I both teach um, ethics here um, at ASU and in, in the various MBA programs. And we had just, around this time, it was 2017-ish, um, if I've got my timeline correct. Around this time, we were both really integrating moral foundations theory um, quite a bit into our classes, which, which is essentially Jonathan Haidt's idea that you know, we all have these different value structures and foundations as, as individuals. There's a lot of overlap between us, but those those things kind of um, input into our worldview and determine how we get along with each other, um, how we like each other, right? And so we kind of started thinking about that and saying, well, obviously this, this worldview dynamic is also important, not only to our interpersonal relationships, my relationship with Don or with Rich or with Young, but also as stakeholders, our relationships with organizations. We like mm -hmm. organizations that have worldviews that are consistent with our own. And we maybe dislike organizations that have, have different kinds of worldviews. And so we thought about, well, that's not just in, again, it's not just in that dyadic relationship. It's also kind of in the systems relationship. If I see an organization treating another stakeholder in a way that's consistent with my values, that's probably likely to, to make me happy or to increase my utility. And if I see an organization kind of mistreating uh, another stakeholder in a way that's inconsistent with my values or my worldview, that's gonna make me dislike and may, maybe reduce my utility. Um, and what we think is really important about this social worldview is that's kind of all in absence of any of the instrumental benefits, of any of the actual outcomes associated with the relationship. I just might reduce my utility based on that worldview um, alone. And, and One of the examples we, yeah. I mean, that's why we call it a principle-based rather than outcome-based judgment uh, worldview, because we're just interested in the, one of the examples that I don't think, I'm not sure we use it in the book or in the, in the uh, paper or not, but we definitely use it in presentations. And that's the, what's the matter with Canvas? Can, what's the matter with Canvas? Kansas book where um, uh, one of the premises of the book is that people sometimes vote against their own, their own economic interests out of strong ideology. And, um, and that's something that John and uh, Young and I were very interested in is the idea that people could, uh, it would have this worldview actually uh, influences the other two, like how you assess equity and inequity and how you assess instrumental gains, that it actually colors the other two as, as well as just uh, giving you information about the, when you look at the other, how the other stakeholders being treated, you get information about the company's principles and about the company's ideology. Right, right. One of the examples we used was the, this giant tax, corporate tax cut in 2018 and uh, speculating how people with different ideologies, different points of view would be happy or sad about the way that a corporation used their tax cuts, for example, either to give it back to shareholders or to give bonuses to employees or whatever they, cho what they chose to do. But it, it, it's what they choose to do signals part of what their principles are, part of what their ideology is. And, and we felt like that, that just hadn't quite been captured in, in the stakeholder literature 
mm-hmm. um, yet, right? That, that we, we know a lot about how, you know, if, if my instrumental value goes up, I'm happier in the relationship, I want to stick around. But what we never really quite considered was, you know, is there an, is there an oppor- is there a chance that maybe my, my actual instrumental outcomes go down, yet my, my utility in the relationship goes up because the, the firm is doing something that I like. So the example we use in the paper is, you know, if McDonald's or Burger King or fast food, whatever fast food company raises wages for employees, right. maybe like me as a customer, I'm okay with actually paying more for my hamburger or whatever it might be, because I know that employees are getting a better wage, right? So even though like my instrumental benefits actually go down, I have to pay more for, for the goods and services. Maybe my utility actually goes up because it displays that, that worldview consistency, right? And so we wanted to capture that um, with this principle-based judgment in addition to the two outcome base, the one that's relative, which is the, the equity stuff, which is, which is really well-established. And we were kind of just integrating that, that well-established stuff into our theory here. And then the, you know, like I said, the classic economic arguments about um, gains yeah. and losses. Let me hit on that one for just a second. So that last one isn't quite as straightforward as it seems. The, the one about instrumental gains and losses, it's how might the other stakeholders treatment lead to my own gains and losses? And so this is not like psychological equity inequity comparison. This is your, one example that I like to think about is if you have a, this high powered person who gets hired in your department, your academic department, um, and they are all of a sudden getting a giant salary. You could look at that two different ways. You could look at it as a taking away from the total pie that allows you for, for uh, the possibility of getting more, um, more of a cut of that pie later on. In other words, it could take away from your ability to have an income increase in the future. Or So that would be, that would be like a zero-sum way of looking at this situation. And a pie-expanding way of looking at it was this person's going to bring in so much attention and, uh, and uh, maybe resources to our department that they are actually going to be good for me. So that, so it, it just, it's a very much a individual tried to, uh, evaluating this as either a pie expanding or zero sum situation. Well, and there's a third possibility too, which is that, you know, I recognize as a result of this, that this is an organization that rewards excellence and performance. Mm-hmm. And that gives me opportunities that if I'm willing to make whatever sacrifices are needed to, uh, to achieve that level of excellence, then I too can get those rewards. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and, and this was just the fun thing about writing this paper was, was recognizing those social interpretations, right? The idea that this isn't just a me and the firm as, as a stakeholder and firm kind of interpretive relationship. It's also about how does the firm treat everyone else? How do I interpret that from various perspectives um, and, and kind of make my ultimate utility assessment? And, and Rich, uh, one of the fun things about working on this paper um, through the process, so kind of think kind of outside of the ideas, but the process was, you know, we had three co-authors and we have these three kind of dimensions that were, that were assessing utility on. So it was really mm-hmm. fun. The way we kind of organized the work was, each of us took one of them. Um, I took the worldview, Don took equity, and Young, Young took the instrumental um, stuff. And we kind of did this like independent writing exercise. And then we came together and just critiqued everybody's writing and made a bunch of changes to each other's. And so it was just a lot of fun because 
we kind of just did this divide and conquer, but then come back together. And it was, it was a different way of working on a, on a paper that I've, I've experienced and ended up being that just, I learned so much in the process because I got to see kind of Don's independent writing and Young's independent writing, and they got to see mine. And then we got to work on integrating those things. So it was just kind of a cool process to do. Yeah. That. That's convenient that there, you know, you had, uh, uh, three co-authors and three perspectives that you were pursuing. Right. So you could nominate one to be the champion of each perspective. Exactly. And yeah. that frees you, I would think, to, you know, be able to pursue, you know, that particular perspective uh, for at least a while, for at least a part of yeah. the writing process uh, exactly. without, you know, without thinking about how is this necessarily going to connect up with the whole and then worrying about the drawing the connections later. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it, as as you two well know, with with AMRs, sometimes it's it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the stuff that you're trying to do and combine and and bring together. And we were drawing from you know three, four different theories and trying to make sense of all of them. And so that was what was really fun, as you noted, Rich, was we were able to each kind of do a deep dive into our separate ideas, but then we always had to keep the overarching. How do these things? speak to each other and integrate um, mm -hmm. um, at, 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 at the top of our minds. And then of course, when we came back together as the three of us, that's where a lot of that really great integration work came out. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, who, who is the target audience for this paper? Who should read it? Well, I guess there's a couple target audiences. And I think one is all of our friends in stakeholder theory who are doing such interesting work. And, and honestly, we think it's a really, John and I both and, and Young, we all think it's a really important area of exploration. Uh, it, so we want, we want uh, and we've had a lot of positive feedback so far actually from, from those people. Uh, it, it, we want it to be a contribution that it continues to inspire others and that people in that line of thinking will um, will continue to, to build on. John? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely this stakeholder theory folks. And what I what I love about kind of the current conversations um, in, in strategy kind of uh, more writ large um, is, is that kind of stakeholders are getting a lot more attention recently. Of course, you know, we had the business round table do their big declaration a couple of years ago on the redefining the purpose of the firm and uh, you know, folks like 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 Jay Varney and Anita McGahan and others are, are kind of getting into um, stakeholders and stakeholder theory uh, a lot more. And so, so in, you know, in addition to kind of centrally focused on the stakeholder theory, folks, I would say, you know, um, anyone trying to manage relationships and organizations, so strategy, even 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 OB folks, uh, might get something out of this paper because because ultimately that's that's what the paper is about. It's how does the firm manage its relationships? with stakeholders because the, the paper is about how stakeholders understand and interpret those relationships. And of course that, that influences their behavior um, after they do that interpretive work. And so, um, you know, our hope is that, that a lot of folks would be attracted to some of the core ideas here, because I think um, they're, they're wide in scope in terms of, of and, and that comes from, you know, we drew, we drew quite widely on different theories as we were crafting um, the paper and the ideas. And so uh, our hope is that, that a lot of folks, yeah. I mean, this is an example we give later on in the discussion section, but it, 
managers today are under a lot of pressure to get involved in social issues. And, um, and this should be a vexing problem for top managers as to whether or not an organization should take a stance um, on an area that's controversial, um, kind of irrespective of their personal feelings. And one thing you, uh, I guess one complication we just want to add to, to thinking about that is that you, you should be thinking about the really the worldviews of your of the people that you're trying to keep on board and um, it could be that you're that it will be a way of satisfying those people and it could be a way of um of doing the opposite so uh it's just a we think that we don't think this paper provides any easy answers for managers but we do think it helps provide some uh, some more nuances that they should be thinking about while they're making that kind of decision um, ultimately, you know, it's 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 not just about what you deliver, the the phone or the the mm -hmm. desk or the food or whatever it might be that you're selling to folks, right? And of course, we've known this for a long time, but we're trying to kind of connect some of those dots from the great research as Don kind of noted at the intro. We we really like right. this paper because we don't think we're challenging anybody. We're just taking that next step, um, doing a lot of some of the integrative work that we think. Um, is needed. So, you know, the, the, the folks that are studying non-market strategy and uh, corporate political activism and engagement, right? These are like really important questions that I don't think firms and managers have any answers to right now. And, and so the hope would be um, we can give them at least some, some ways of thinking about it, a framework for kind of understanding um, how stakeholders kind of ultimately uh, decide whether they're happy or not with your, with your organization. Right. Okay. Well, let me shift gears then. So for the benefit of maybe less experienced researchers who may be watching this video, um, you know, I, I always like to say, you know, having a great idea is, 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 is uh, you know, it's kind of an essential starting point, but it's not enough by itself, right? So uh, you had this great idea based on this insight of the conflict between the envy literature and the positive ripple effect literature and stakeholders. Uh, so that's a great insight, but that's not a paper in itself, right? So you have to, you know, and you, you got to the point where you could express some basics of this idea in your presentation at the conference, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, the process that you went through to coalesce this and solidify it into an actual manuscript from the point where you give, give that presentation at, at the conference to the point where you have a, you know, an initial rough, you know, an initial draft of the manuscript to submit to a journal. Tell, take us through that journey with you. So I'll start and then I know John's going to jump in, but I, I think the, uh, so I believe my, looking back on my notes at that presentation I did at the Academy, it was really pretty equity focused. And I was really, I was really thinking about the Nickerson and Zanger paper about envy. And I, and, um, and then I, I just have the wonderful opportunity to work with, with uh, John and Young um, and uh, to sit and brainstorm with them. Like what it's just talk about all, like, what is it that you look at in another stakeholder and, and of course, we can just bring this down to the level of the, the person in the next office, or you can think about it at any level of analysis, sort of stakeholder groups, or whether it's just that next person next door who's like getting a different pay level than you are. And, um, and so it's thinking about all the things that go into that. And then, um, and that, and that starts to flesh out the three, the, these three lenses that we, that we 
that were not that were not part of my original thinking and that I wouldn't have come to at least not readily without the help of those other two. And so, John, where'd we go from there? Yeah, it was it was it was it was a lot of fun. It was honestly one of the funnest things that we did um, in the process because Don gives this presentation at Academy. I, I have no knowledge of it beforehand. I listen and watch it and then we connect when we get back, we're like, this is a really good idea. And Don's presentation was mostly examples. So he was just kind of looking at the world really phenomenologically and kind of saying, here's what I see and what's some of the uncertainty that surrounds it. And then Young was was first semester doc student. And we say, you want to work on this paper with us? She says, sure. We're like, okay, you're in our, our weekly meetings. And so we had a weekly brainstorming meeting probably for the in for the first six months, right? I don't think we wrote a word um, for that whole semester, we would just meet, we would get Don's whiteboard. We always did it in his office and we would just draw pictures and ideas and, and get things down. Um, Don, Don, Don and I are not shy, um, people. And so we would have disagreements and those were a lot of fun. They were like that positive kind of disagreement where we say, no, we want to go this way or that way. And poor young in our first semester ever was just kind of watching, me and Don at on occasion yell at each other in very friendly ways, of course. Um, and so it was, I think, a great learning experience for her. I hope she would say that. Maybe she would say that. She got early um, exposure to the inner workings of the sausage factory. That's, right. <laughs> that's, that's right. And the great thing about Young, just to put a plug out here, she's on the market, people, um, was she jumped in right away, too, right? I think you know maybe the first couple of meetings she saw us get really excited and, and that kind of uh, bled into her. And she's just, she's just brilliant in her own regard. And so she... She really contributed for day from day one, um, like I said, and so uh, it was just a lot of fun just kicking it around and and maybe maybe folks who have never written a theory paper before um, think you know oh it's easier you just have to you just have to sit and write and there's no data to deal with and things like that right we we kicked the idea around for six months for at least an hour a week that entire time before we wrote the first word. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was that was a process um, b- before we jumped on this call. I, I went to count how many drafts we had mm-hmm. of the the first submissions before it ever got in. And I counted 23 named drafts mm-hmm. so where we would put like the version number in the actual title. And there was at least another 20 or 30, maybe even 40 other drafts where it was just, you know, a picture or some notes or maybe the beginnings of the introduction and, and things like that. So um, it took, it took a lot more. I'd say after our first kind of six months of brainstorming, I don't, I, I don't know the exact timeline, but at least another year before we actually probably got everything written down and friendly reviewed and in, and in shape where we wanted to submit it um, to the journal. Just add, in case you're curious, there was another 30 drafts from the R1 um, and then another 11 on the R2 and then it was conditionally accepted. So at least 64 yeah. named version drafts of, of, of the document. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. One thing you guys know, one thing you need in this game is patience. You've got to be patient. If you rush it and, and, you know, we've all been uh, AEs at this journal yeah. and we have all seen submissions that are clearly not well-baked. They, they just are, submitted before their time and uh and you just you you've got to live with the paper 
for quite a while. I love the idea of, of just having it on the whiteboard for six months uh, and brainstorming before things are before things get written down. Because once you start writing things down, then you start falling in love with your own writing and it becomes harder to change it. Really that, you know, that initial time where you're just forming the dough and sticking it in the proofer, you know, that's where, that's where, uh, that's where you really, you're setting the foundation for the writing. Perfect. So what, what would you say were the biggest challenges that you faced on this project overall? I, I had thought that one a little previously, so I'll jump in first if that's okay, okay Don. Um, we've got these three lenses, right? And we, we wrote them kind of independently and then worked to really get them integrated. And so like, that's like the first 15 pages or so of the paper. And um, that all really gelled really well. It made a lot of sense. But then of course there's the end, then what? And that was the end, then what for us was, obviously there's an interrelationship between these three lenses. They don't exist independently to, you know, I do this and this and this, and then my utility is the, the output, right? It was, no, they're related. They've got some kind of um, dynamic going on and figuring that out was, was really, really tough. Um, yeah. in, in the first submission, we, you know, we had challenged ourselves, but I, you know, maybe the conclusion was there's a relationship between them and um, that's for future research to kind of unpack and reviewers, this is to their credit. We're like, nope, you got to do that. Yeah. You got to do that in this paper. Uh, and they gave us, you know, wonderful ideas. And, and Sharon Alvarez was the editor. And she gave us wonderful ideas on how we could do that. And so that was really the, the whole entirety of the, the first revision was the reviewers were generally okay with the, the first 15 pages, but they're like, nope, you got to build out those second 15 pages in, in a much more robust way. And so those were, you know, a whole nother set of, brainstorming discussions and whiteboarding and, and really challenging and critically thinking about. And, and at that point, Don had suggested a really major change to the paper. And Don, I'll never forget this meeting. Maybe you don't remember it. You were, Don's seen more senior than I am. And I don't think I had tenure at that time. So someone who could potentially vote on my package just made <laughs> me so like, he, he suggested this change. You're like, nope can't do that there's no way and I like went back to my office I was storming mad and then like over like a couple of weeks Don completely convinced me that that change was what we had to do and we did and it and the paper is much better for it but it just kind of goes to the dynamics of kind of how you do these things it was just it was that was a that was a really hard kind of couple of months figuring out those those interrelationships and those dynamics and really challenging ourselves so you're saying you were the biggest challenge in this project. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. My my size, Don said. I kind of, I kind of That's fell in I'm love hearing. with. I, I fell in love with what we. Jonathan's done. ego was the biggest challenge in the project. Right, yeah, it all, it all. But at some point during the review process, I can't remember exactly when. John probably knows better than I do. We realized how what an overwhelming influence the worldview was on the other parts of the model, and we hadn't entered the paper with that. I'm pretty sure we, that wasn't in the first first version. So. Uh, if anybody who's watching this is going to actually pull the paper, and I hope you do, you'll see that at the end we provide a process model where everything kind of fits together, and we, and and it just shows the the, the overwhelming influence of the worldview um, on the other parts of the model. And I think that that was a sort of struggling with that and figuring out how that actually works it was hard, and then really rewarding 
And just kind of a trivial thing we struggled with was, well, should we call this utility or should we call it satisfaction? And we went back and forth in, in different versions because utility, you know, utility is a, economists love the word utility and it, it, and it's very, it really works, but we actually presented it once and somebody got mad in the audience because they thought we were being, we were trying to be like economists. I don't know what exactly what the criticism was, but felt that we should just simply call it a stakeholder satisfaction. So we went back and forth on that, ended up with utility. Yeah, and they do have different implications because I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this or think others think differently, but I, I tend to think of utility as an input uh, right. in the sense that it's a, an objective function, right? Mm -hmm. And it's yep. the basis upon which I'm going to make decisions, whereas I also tend to think of satisfaction as kind of an outcome. Yeah, uh, I think that's, so a nice, it's, that's a nice way of looking at it. I wish I had had you... Uh, around earlier when we could have thought that out better. Is this an input into the decision-making process or is this an outcome of the decision-making yeah. process? Yep, that's right. good. Uh, that, that would be, in my mind, the distinction between satisfaction and utility. We, um, we uh, so, sorry, sorry, Rich. Um, you go ahead. In, the reviewers are super helpful in this regard too, because yeah. you know we, we got really lucky in the sense that we got great reviewers. And you know, I think Amar does does you know, a little biased here, but I think Amar does a great job um, selecting reviewers and and, and editors. Just as a reminder to our viewer to our viewers, Jonathan is another associate editor at Amar, so <laughs> that's his um, bias. Yes. <laughs> and so. Um, and, and so rather than like telling us we had to do something, they were always framed as, as just a conversation, right? Hey, have you, have you, has the author team thought about, you know, whether or not this is actually utility or satisfaction is a better DV for you? Um, and of course, you know, we, we were behavioral kind of strategists, um, me and Don and, and Young. And so, you know, we're drawing on, on you know, psychology and, and elements of sociology and things like that. And so satisfaction made a lot of sense just in terms of the, the other words that we were using and the other theories um, that we were using. And so really, but, you know, to their credit, the reviewers were always willing to just have a conversation with us about this and giving their input. And then we would, we would of course, do the response and give our input. And um, of course, the, the, the manuscript grew um, out of that conversation. You obviously have kinder reviewers than I usually get. So. <laughs> yeah. I have to say they were, they weren't in love with us. There's no, <laughs> and, and they were, in fact, they were pretty critical in the beginning, but they were also quite uh, constructive and, and um, it did feel like, uh, like they, they wanted us to succeed, even though they had a lot of criticisms. Nice. So um, let me shift gears and ask a completely different question, which is, you know, what impact do you hope that this paper will have uh, in the future? And I guess you could think of this, at least I tend to think of this in, as, as five possibilities, right? It could have an impact on future theory. Uh, it could have an impact on future empirics, empirical research. It could have an influence on, on an impact on future practice, perhaps uh, an impact on future pedagogy, or maybe even an impact on future policy. So. There's, there's five different dimensions you could go with there. Just pick one and tell us, you know, what impact do you hope this paper will have in that, in that dimension? I think it's most likely to have an impact on the stakeholder theory conversation. I, uh, what I hope it has the most impact on, I guess, is practice, because I'm getting, farther I get into my career, the more I really just want 
to actually be helping, you know, the, the, the practical world. And, and so I think uh, to the extent that we can translate this in our MBA classes and, um, and maybe, and so maybe pedagogy has something to do with it too, but uh, sort of um, find ways to have this influence the, pr the pra practice. I think that would be a, a great thing. John? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, I keep thinking, I, I think I mentioned Don and I, we, we each teach uh, ethics to the, to the various MBAs here. Uh, and, and we've, we've kind of co-developed our courses. So there's a lot of similarities um, between them. So there's not a lot of variance between the MBA cohorts. And as part of that, we developed this kind of framework for ethical decision-making, something we're really proud of and, and we're hopeful um, that our MBAs will obviously get some use out of it and then maybe we can develop for in the future. But I would say this, this framework has a similar feel to it, meaning you, know, you, you could turn this into a framework for decision-making, or at least for thinking yeah. about decisions uh, for managers and, and for, for students. And so you know, there's three dimensions. We, we talk about the relationships, but there's kind of ways to understand each dimension. And so you know, as a manager is making a decision that, that influences stakeholders, which is, of course, you know, any decision that they're going to make, um, they, could they could think about these three um, lenses independently, and then they could think about them in, in concert um, as, they're, as they're kind of um, making that decision. So, you know, in addition to all the, you know, the cost and finance and, and other elements of the decision that they have to make. And so I, I would hope, like Don, um, that, that we might have an impact there. And then, of course, um, you know, we've had to, we've had the opportunity to present this this paper to a lot of folks in the stakeholder theory space, and um, uh, really hopeful that that they'll they'll pick it up and kind of run with it and and um, uh, add to it like like we did and test it um, with with some brilliant models and and kind of go forth. And just one more word on on the teaching uh, of MBA students. Uh, now that I've been doing it for many years, early on. Uh, I like to have it. I used to like to have a debate between people who would take the Milton Friedman very narrow shareholder point of view and um, maybe the Ed Freeman more broad stake, stakeholder point of view. And I would set them up in you know two parts of the room and have and I'd let them choose which side they wanted. As the years have gone on, I started having a harder and harder time getting people to join the Milton Friedman group. And um, and. Uh, I finding I'm finding this shift with my MBA students that they're they're really joining the Jay Barney idea, which is that you it, it's just kind of important for value um, for creating value in the firm to be able to um, uh, engage uh, you know your and makes and make happy your full set of stakeholders. And so I think this uh, work really complements that idea. It just helps to flesh out what that means to, uh, to satisfy your stakeholders, to provide them utility, the kind of utility that's going to keep them engaged. And that's going to allow you to keep running your organization. And so anyway, I think it's, I think it, it's a nice fit with all that. I'm, I'm not sure Jay would go along with you on the, the, the full set of stakeholders. I mean, I suspect. Yeah, no, I understand. The irreplaceable I, set of stakeholders. Exactly. That's right. I, I, yeah, I shouldn't mischaracterize his, his point of view. People should read what he's written, which is really important stuff about stakeholder theory. Yeah. Now, jo Jonathan, I think I, I, I like your answer to the question because it's, it, I was thinking a similar direction, right? In the sense that um, in, in some sense, this is not intended to be a complete theory, this paper, right? Because it doesn't get to the actual decision-making 
as you mm -hmm. pointed out, right? So, so presumably a future theory could build on this to extend it into decision-making. And that's kind of implicit in your use of the word utility in the title, right? Mm -hmm. Because as I mentioned earlier, utility is kind of a, is an objective function that is used as an input into a decision-making process usually in, 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 in the way economists use the term utility. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, so it would be just, I think a very natural extension for theorists to think through, okay, now that we understand what goes into the utility function, what decisions come out of that utility function? Um, yeah, and I think, well, um, you know, like, like any AMR or any, any theory type article, obviously we're, we're very incomplete in, in the sense of we're just, we're just continuing the conversation as opposed to providing a whole lot of answers uh, to that conversation. But you're right. I think, you know, what, what we, if you, if you work, if a manager were to work through our, our theory and um, think about it as a framework, what they get is kind of an output where, you know, maybe they're weighing two decisions and they'd be able to say, this decision will affect these stakeholders in this way. And this is kind of how we expect they might react and this, this other one. So rather than of course, thinking about that dyadic, how will customers react to this? It's kind of thinking a little bit more broadly in terms of how, how the others might react to this decision. And, and so hopefully it would just kind of add just another one of those elements to that, that, that decision tree. Great. Well, gentlemen, I am out of questions at this point. So uh, you're, you're welcome to add any additional comments. If you think there's important questions that I didn't ask that I should have asked, I'm happy to you know, entertain your comments on those. Well, we definitely appreciate the opportunity. It's fun to talk about the paper, fun to sort of go back in time because, you know, over the years, it takes years to put a paper like this together and then sort of revisiting how we, how we approached it. It's just fun to think about, fun to talk about it with John. Oh, and I appreciate that, that this, uh, this video will help future theorists, uh, young researchers who may never have produced a, a contribution to theory to help them think through you know, the process and, and how, how they can contribute to theory as well. So it's a great way of giving back to the, um, to the profession. Thank you very much for doing it. Thank I'll, you. Uh, I'll, I'll add there, Rich, that as part of when we, when we first started thinking about the actual writing part of the theory, we, we drew very heavily on um, Don and Mike Farr's um, from the editor essay yes. that, that discusses the, um, the building blocks of a, of a, of a theory paper and, and um, what, what Don likes to call the five C's. So I would encourage folks to, to, go, to go get that, Rich, your own work um, on, on contributing to theory. And then um, uh, Jay Barney has that, that the, from the editor about writing the really short introductions. And, right. Um, and Don and I took a stab at that too with Young and, and were able to kind of get um, uh, that as, as an exercise to kind of think about um, how to frame and, and, and write the initial parts of the series. So, so all of those resources that, Rich, I know you and I, we, we promote regularly um, right. um, in AMR workshops and things like that. Um, all three of those workshop, uh, those, those resources and others were just really important from, from the get-go. Um, yeah, it's a good time in the history of the field to be a young theorist because there's a lot of these tools and resources just sitting around right. as low-hanging fruit to, you know, to enable... Uh, uh, young uh, researchers to help them develop their, their, their thinking, help them develop their theoretical contributions. Thanks for mentioning that. 
Well, great. Thank you again for participating in today's uh, uh, episode of the AMR Origin Series. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for having us. Thank you.